If there was ever a man who believed in the goodness of God and trusted God in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances, it's Joseph. Joseph is loved and hated, favored and abused, trusted and tempted, exalted and humiliated. And yet at no point in his life does Joseph ever take his eyes off God. Joseph never ceases to trust God and trust God's plan for his life. Adversity doesn't harden his heart, it strengthens his character. Prosperity doesn't ruin his soul, but expands his capacity to help and serve others. Joseph is the same in private as he is in public. Fully devoted to God and the purposes of God in and through his life. Joseph is such an encouragement. God and God's promises were always at the center of his life. And so he remained faithful to God. No matter what. Every single step of the way. Joseph never complained. He never compromised. He overcame envy and hatred. He prevailed in adversity. He resisted sexual impropriety. He used his gifts to bless and build up those around him to the fullest capacity wherever he was, whomever he was with. And perhaps most significantly, Joseph consistently forgave all of those who wronged him. Joseph's life is an incredible encouragement and example. He shows us how to respond to the call of God on our lives, how to grow in godly character, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. He shows us how to make a positive contribution with the ways that he has invested in us and shaped us for the benefit of others. And he's perhaps the best example in all of the Bible of the benevolent providence of God described in Romans 8.28. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. So during the season of Lent, we're looking at the life and the leadership of Joseph to remember and to remind us that God loves us and he calls us into relationship to enjoy him and to participate in his amazing plan for the world. And that God's in the character development business. He's using the people and the places and even the pain in our lives to recreate us in Christ Jesus for the good purposes that he planned in advance for us to walk in. And God is weaving a beautiful 
colorful, bright tapestry with our lives, empowering each one of us to do great things according to his purposes, for his glory, for our joy, and for the sake of others. I think that's an amen. I'm going to take it as one. So we begin our series um, on the life of Joseph at the beginning of Joseph's life. Will you open your Bibles uh, this morning to Genesis chapter 37? We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 in your blue Bible. This is on page 77. Sorry, 31. I don't know what 77 was, but it's 31. Okay. 31, thank you. You're a good Berean. Um, All right, now remember, here's the context. Remember that God is creating a people for himself to love and bless who will represent him to the world. Okay, this is is the story uh, that God is unfolding and this is where we pick up in God's story. The story of Joseph's life begins with, this is the account of Jacob. Do you see that? And the phrase, this is the account of, is familiar throughout the book of Genesis. It's called a toledoth, a little Hebrew this morning, a toledoth. And it serves as a way to organize and mark a significant turning point in God's story. This is the 11th time this phrase occurs in Genesis. And what follows is the account of how God sovereignly acts in and through the life of Joseph to accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises, even in circumstances filled with favoritism and jealousy and envy and hatred. God's love, his passionate pursuit of a people, will not be deterred. He is pursuing, he is pursuing a people to know him and be known by him and to enjoy him, not only here and now, but forever. And so let's look at verse two. We see Joseph is a shepherd. He's 17 years old and he's working as a shepherd There are a lot of God's leaders that begin as shepherds, aren't there? And while shepherding with his brothers, Joseph apparently observes them engage in some unethical, ungodly behavior. And so Joseph reports this wrongdoing to his dad. Now, here's the question. Do you think that this is tattletaling? Or do you think this is honest, genuine truth-telling? So, okay. So, so, so it's, it's an interesting question, and different people respond to this in, in different ways. So let's unpack this a little bit, okay? Now, remember in the story that Joseph's brothers have a reputation for being corrupt and for doing wrong. Remember just a few years earlier, 
Reuben slept with his father's concubine. And just a little bit earlier, after deceiving Hamor and his son Shechem, his brothers Simeon and Levi murdered them and then massacred all the men in their entire unsuspecting city. All right, the sons of Jacob are shady at best, right? They've got a reputation for being ungodly and corrupt. So what do you think? It could be that in his immaturity, Joseph uses the truth to actually condemn his brothers. Perhaps his motives are arrogant and self-serving. He's a tattletale. No one likes a tattletale. He rats out his brothers to differentiate himself from them so that he can elevate himself and come across as better than them. Maybe he does it to gain even more favor in the eyes of his father. You ever known someone like that? We all know people like that who, who are spoiled by too much success, too young, and they become full of themselves. Maybe this is the case for Joseph. Could be. Or it could be that Joseph possesses a really strong sense of justice and hates evil and genuinely has the best interest of his father and his father's business at heart. It could be that Joseph is acting mature beyond his years with a great sense of integrity and responsibility. Maybe the wrongdoing of his brothers possesses a significant threat and he's protecting his father's reputation and safeguarding the family resources. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon then or now to speak up and speak out in order to expose corruption, even in the face of potentially negative consequences. At preaching cohort this week, Brimer told a story he and his family were at um, an Arkansas Travelers baseball game. And uh, <clears throat> there was this big dude sitting on the end. And there was this father and the son sitting next to him. And uh, the beer guy comes down. And he turns and he's selling beer across the aisle. And when he does, the big dude on the end reaches into his cart and steals a beer. And the nine-year-old or so boy sitting next to him, leans up and goes, hey, he just stole a beer out of your cart. You can't do that. Put it back. His dad was a little bit unnerved because this was a big dude, right? The point is this. Not all whistleblowers are arrogant and self-serving. So is Joseph immature and arrogant? Or is he being faithful and responsible? Look at verse 3. It's interesting that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And there's a lot to this. There are a lot of reasons why Jacob might be favoring Joseph. 
The first is favoritism. Choosing a favorite child seems normal to Jacob. Uh, Jacob was his mother's favorite. Remember that? And coincidentally, she helps Jacob take the birthright from his brother. So it could be that Jacob is merely repeating the toxic family pattern from his own experience. We also know that Joseph uh, is the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. That thought, that sentence is difficult in and of itself, but it's true. And this certainly could have affected uh, his level of affection for Joseph. But here's what's interesting. Follow me. Referring to Joseph as the son of his old age links him with Isaac, the child that Sarah bore to Abraham in his old age. It's the same phrase that's used in Genesis 21 too. Okay? So what this does is it strongly suggests that Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers because he believed that Joseph would be the child that God promised, the only one who would carry on the promise of God, the promised line of the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman referred to in Genesis 3.15. Or, perhaps and, it could be as simple as trust. Follow me here. Reuben's sin was such an offense that he not only lost his father's favor, but also his birthright as the firstborn son. And all the other sons had significant character issues as well. And yet Joseph is faithful and hardworking and responsible and honest and reliant and resilient and trustworthy. He's shown himself as a leader. So maybe Jacob exercises his right to appoint Joseph as the heir and rewards him with the rights and privileges of the firstborn because he's the best choice. Is this favoritism or a wise decision? What what do you think? Whatever you think, Joseph's elevation is marked by the giving of a special gift, a special coat. In Hebrew, it's kefeneth pass. And the literal meaning is a long-sleeved tunic that extends to the ankles, something that Brit would wear. Most... (laughs) Most tunics were, were, in the day were sleeveless and they stopped at the knees and they were worn by working men. But a long-sleeved, colorful, tailored tunic was worn by someone who didn't have to work. So when Joseph appears in this coat, his brothers recognize it as a sign of his father's choice of Joseph to be the new head of the family, the one who's in charge. And incidentally, the only other place that we see this phrase in the Bible 
is in 2 Samuel where it refers to a garment like this as a royal garment. Now also, just as an aside, for the archaeological nerds, in the tombs of Beni Hassin in Egypt, which date back to the patriarchal age, there are pictorials that show Semitic chiefs The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph are Semitic. These pictures show Semitic chiefs wearing colorful, full-length coats as an insignia and a designation of their rulership, of their headship. And so the coat is an undeniable sign that Jacob appoints Joseph, not Reuben, as the heir and leader of the family, its businesses, and all of its assets. All of it. At 17. And his brothers don't take that very well. Look at verse 4. They're already mad that Joseph told on them. Now he's the leader of the family. And Joseph's brothers hate him for it. They hate him so much that they can't even greet him in a normal, everyday way. Literally, the text says they couldn't say shalom to him. That was before the dream started. After the dream start, they hate him all the more. Look at verses 5 through 8. Two dreams, Joseph's first dream. You remember it? In this first dream, God is revealing his calling on Joseph's life. It's interesting that the dreams come after Joseph is already despised and rejected. And perhaps this is God's providential pastoral timing. God is perhaps revealing Joseph's calling at just the right time to provide Joseph with clarity and hope in a time that was getting dicey in the midst of jealousy and hate. God reveals his call on Joseph's life to encourage him and to bring him hope and a time that otherwise might have been filled with confusion and despair. But that's not the way the brothers see it. It's really fascinating because the brothers know their family history. They know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and their dad, Jacob. They know that God has a plan. They know that God is pursuing a people for himself, a people to represent him to the nations and extend his love to the world. They know that their family is the bearer and instrument of God's promise. And they know that God's spoken to their family through dreams before, and those dreams were real and helpful and encouraging. And they know that in their story, Time and time and time again, God's ways aren't necessarily their family's ways. And yet, time and time and time again, God's purposes 
prevail. They know this. And they hate Joseph all the more. So Joseph receives a second dream. And in this second dream, God confirms his calling on Joseph's life. He confirms it. Now remember Joseph's 17. And you may not think it says this explicitly in the story, but it does seem to be inferred that this is not Joseph's best moment. That he seems to be more insecure than humble. He seems to force it. He seems to attempt to justify his calling and prove himself rather than waiting upon the Lord and trusting the Lord to make his calling clear and his path straight. God has a call on Joseph's life. A call to be a kingdom leader to a non-kingdom people. God has a call on Joseph's life, but Joseph has not yet developed the character, the competency, or the capacity to handle that calling well. Not yet. And as a result, it seems Joseph becomes a bit arrogant His brothers tell him so. His dad tells him so. In Life Group this week, someone uh, shared that uh, their nine-year-old boy has a, 10-year-old boy has a boy's study Bible. And they were reading the first part of the story of Joseph this week And in the boy's study Bible, it asked a couple of questions. How could Jacob and Joseph have handled their relationship better? What could they have done to minimize the jealousy and the strife that God's calling was stirring up in the midst of their family? Really good questions. I got to get a boy's study Bible. And yet, this chapter in the story is summed up in a really interesting way. His dad, Jacob, ponders what Joseph shares. Kind of like Mary did. Pondered in her heart what God was doing. It may not have been communicated well, but Jacob knows God. He's wrestled with God, and he knows that God speaks through dreams. He knows God's plan. He knows God's promise, and he knows that for better or for worse, Joseph is the one through whom God will continue to pursue a people for himself to save the nations. Wow, what a story. Joseph is such an encouragement. He's such an incredible model and example for us to observe and to hear from God through and to respond to God through. 
I think there's several applications, several ways that God is speaking to us as followers of Jesus with grace. And I just want to lay these out for you this morning uh, and encourage you to ponder them in your heart. But not just to ponder, but to talk to God, to listen, to go to a prayer team this morning and let God do some work in your heart, to come around the table this morning and invite the Lord to move in a powerful, redemptive, recreating way to align you to his calling on your life and his purposes in and through you. First, it's important to acknowledge and break generational sins in our lives. Generational sins are are weaknesses. They're, They're tendencies that are handed down to us through the generations from our parents or family members. And and these generational sins um, cause us, knowingly and often unknowingly, uh, to exhibit thinking or behavioral patterns that keep us trapped in unhealthy and harmful rhythms. I first really became aware of the reality and pain an effect of generational sins in my life when Amanda and I were going through premarital counseling and a friend encouraged me to write out my family tree and acknowledge both the spiritual ways that God had moved through my family and celebrate that, but also to acknowledge the addictions and the dysfunctions and the brokenness that was in my family that I was also a recipient of. And then when Amanda became pregnant with our first child, Benjamin, we were not only praying for God to break those generational sins in our lives, but also in the life of Ben so that he could come into the world with a clean, fresh start and inherit the good stuff that God was depositing in us, not the bad stuff that was residue from our old sinful nature. The cure for a generational sin or a generational curse is repentance and faith. And God's provision for breaking those patterns and behavior and forgiving our sin is the cross of Christ. And when we confess our sin, Jesus not only forgives us, but he purifies us from all of the effects of sin in our lives and in those who have gone before us that we may be carrying. He removes it from us as far as the east is from the west, redeems it with his love, and gives us a new start. So let's get at that today whether it's with a prayer team or someone sitting next to you or in your heart when you come around the Lord's table. Let's acknowledge and invite God to to break and forgive and redeem those generational sins in our lives and in the lives of our family. Second, God doesn't show favoritism. And as those created in God's image, and imitators of Christ, neither should we. 
playing favorites is one of the most damaging problems in any group of people. And this is why the Apostle James says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. If you favor some people over others, you are committing sin. Seems pretty clear. So with the prayer team today, in your heart, around the Lord's table, let's turn away from showing favoritism and turn to Jesus and celebrate the dignity of every human being created in his image and likeness and remember that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Third, I think we see here in this story the importance of dealing seriously with jealousy and envy before it leads to hate or worse. Y'all, we gotta bring this out of the darkness and into the light. We need to share it with someone who's safe and helpful to us. We need to confess. We might even need to seek healing prayer or counseling. But in those ways that our heart is being wrecked by jealousy and envy and bitterness, we need to seek forgiveness. We need to seek the healing that the Lord desires for us. The devil loves to play on our jealousy and our envy, and he loves to make it steam and stew in our hearts. Do y'all know what uh, one of those steam cookers is? You know, I, I really had never heard of it until a friend recommended it to us. And when I think we got one around Christmas time and a man has been cooking these amazing meals with this steam cooker. And you, know, you put the stuff in there and you turn it on and all the pressure and the steam cooks it. And then when it's done, you release the valve and all this steam comes out and it smells terrible. It smells absolutely nasty. It smells like sweaty socks. And so we made the commitment that the next time that we cook with this awesome steamer, we're going to unplug it and take it outside before we release the steam valve. Y'all, jealousy and envy stinks. It stinks. And it leads to a critical spirit. And a critical spirit leads to a condescending and a condemning attitude that leads to hurtful words and actions. And that is not who we are. We carry the aroma of Christ. That smells good. What does that smell like? I think it smells something like Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against somebody. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's who we are. Our jealousy, our envy, that stinks. But that's not who we are. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And we carry his aroma. So even if you've gotten used to the stench of your jealousy and envy and bitterness and you don't notice it anymore, others do. So let's get that washed up today. If you're carrying around some jealousy, some envy, some bitterness in your heart, go to a prayer team. Come to the Lord's table and ask the Lord to clean that up, to cleanse your heart from jealousy and envy so that you can return to the really sweet smelling child of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Fourth, I think we see here the importance of how we speak the truth. Y'all, as followers of Jesus, smelling really good, we use our words to bless and build up, speaking the truth in love to one another. It's not just about speaking the truth, which is good and right and holy. It's about how we speak the truth. We talked We talk honestly, appropriately, respectfully, and directly with one another. We affirm how we see God's work in each other's lives. We protect one another's reputation. We keep each other's confidences, and we refuse to gossip. It's like John Mayer sings. Say what you need to say. I love that song. But do it gently. Looking at the log in your own eye before you share the speck in someone else's. Say what you need to say humbly, gently. Not to prove yourself or make yourself better than someone, but because you love them and care for them and have their best interest at heart. Speak the truth in love. That's who we are. So go to a prayer team this morning. As you come to the Lord's table, ask the Lord to reset and retune your heart to his. And your words will follow. They'll follow. Finally, I think we see in this story the importance of hearing and responding to God's call on our lives. Calling isn't something special or unique, or for those who go to seminary. Calling is normal and natural and a part of every single one of our lives. You have a call on your life. God has a call on your life. It's not yours, it's God's. And he places it on your life to enjoy him, to represent him, to partner with him in bringing his life and his love and his plan and his purposes to all those around you. Your calling is different than your job. 
You can lose your job, you can lose your position, you can lose your title, you can lose your possessions, but you cannot lose God's calling on your life because he's with you, he'll never leave you or forsake you, he's for you, and he's working out good things through you even when circumstances want to tell you otherwise. Your calling can't be taken away. So it raises the question, what's God's calling on your life? Where? Is he calling you to represent him and be who he created and redeemed you to be in Christ? How do you know that? And when you stand before the Lord, why is it that he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? I get it. Sometimes in our insecurity and our immaturity, we don't handle our calling well. Sometimes we get puffed up. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. Sometimes we try and prove ourselves or protect ourselves. We share things poorly, even if it's the truth. I lost count on how often I've done that because love doesn't keep records of wrong. And I've just asked for forgiveness so many times that I don't want to bring that back up because the Lord doesn't remember it, and he don't want me to either, but it's happened a lot. And as a result, we invite conflict, and we bring hurt upon ourselves, and we bring hurt on other people. And sometimes we're just not clear about our calling. And sometimes we're clear about our calling, but we're in transition, and our calling's morphing slightly. So hey, let's, let's deal honestly and humbly with that this morning at a prayer team, or at the Lord's table. Ask the Lord to speak to you, to clarify his calling on your life so that you can enjoy your relationship with him, follow where he's leading you, obey those things that he has before you for your joy, for his glory, and for the sake of others. I want to close with this thought. What if, what if we lived in such a way that we had nothing to prove and nothing to protect? What if we didn't seek popularity or position or possessions, but we surrendered? We lived a perpetual, habitual life of surrender to the love of God in Christ. What would happen in your life? What would happen in our life together in Christ? What would happen in this neighborhood? What would happen along the Broadway corridor throughout this city and to the ends of the earth? Why not start with us and watch what the Lord does? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for creating us in your image and for your purposes. And as we come to you around the table this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us acknowledge those ways that we don't think or speak or act that are consistent with who you created and redeemed us to be. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to fully receive your forgiveness.
And Lord, we also ask that as we take the bread and the wine, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Give us the desire and the ability to faithfully carry out your calling on our life and to do so with an attitude like Jesus, humbly as a servant, always having the best interest of others at heart. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to develop your character in us. Develop our confidence in you. Develop our competency in your promises and in your power. Develop our capacity to live for you above all else and to love others as you love us. We thank you, Lord. Draw us to you and into your amazing, wonderful, colorful purposes that you are working out through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.